Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Hamilton. Today I want to talk about the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 verse 2. I want to talk about what exactly is being described and how we know that and what that, what the implications of that are for theology. Before getting into the main subject of this video, if you're interested in supporting this channel and want access to select exclusive content in addition to uh, the ability to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with me every month uh, over the phone or Zoom or whatever, if you'd like to take advantage of that, uh, please consider becoming a patron. Just see the relevant details in each of the tiers if you want to see what each tier offers. You can also schedule a one-time one-on-one call through PayPal. Again, see the details below in the description box. With that said, let's get into the subject of this video. So in Genesis 1 verse 2, we read that there was darkness over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now the obvious uh, 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 structure of this text is that these two things are written in parallel in order to establish a contrast. What happens immediately following is that light comes into the world. Now when we understand that light overcomes darkness and we understand that darkness was over the water, what is it that leads one event to the next? It's the hovering of the spirit over the face of the waters. But what role does this play in the structure and the theology of Genesis 1 and indeed of the Pentateuch as a whole? In order to understand that, one must understand what exactly is happening in Genesis 1.1. When we read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, this is not simply, or this is not at all a heading which summarizes what is going to be narrated in the following uh, text. Instead, it is an event in its own right. The creation of the heavens and the earth is the creation, number one, of God's heavenly throne room with myriads and myriads of heavenly beings, angels, archangels, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, and so on and so forth. And it is the creation then of what is here called the earth. Now, earth in Genesis 1.1 refers to this formless void and dark mass of water. Water is the primordial element. As Peter tells us, everything was made from water. And water is the uh, only thing that was created ex nihilo. Everything else in the rest of the text is shaped out of this pre-existing matter, but it only pre-exists relative to the events of creation week. We understand creation ex nihilo because uh, the earth which is created in Genesis 1-1 just is the raw material out of which the world was made. Now we can understand creation week better when we look at the ways in which it is referred back to later in scripture. One of the most common literary devices in scripture is the narration of an event or a prophecy or a vision in seven segments, each of which corresponds to the respective creation day. One of the most clear and straightforward examples is Exodus 25 to 31. Exodus 25 to 31 shows us the instructions for the building of the tabernacle in seven speeches, each of which is clearly delineated by the phrase, the Lord said to Moses. Now, why is that given to us in seven speeches? Well, it's because the tabernacle is an architectural representation of the entire creation. And so when we study the structure of the tabernacle, we are studying the inner structure of creation. God is giving us an exegesis of the meaning of creation by showing us the tabernacle and then enacting liturgical rituals in relation to the tabernacle. When those liturgical rituals are enacted, we are being shown the 
role that man plays vis-a-vis the world writ large. One of the interesting things about Exodus 25 to 31 is the size of the first speech in relation to the other six speeches. Now, the last of these seven speeches is all about Sabbath, so that clearly establishes a connection not just with the number of speeches and the number of creation days, but with the actual content of the speeches and the content of the respective creation days. So the first of these seven speeches is so large because it describes the material which is going to be shaped into the tabernacle. The rest of the speeches describe the ordering and structuring and the placing of all of that material in its proper role in in relation to everything else. But all of that material comes forth on the first of the seven speeches. And that shows us creation ex nihilo in terms of what it means for God to create the earth in Genesis 1.1. So what about the heaven of Genesis 1.1? Because it seems at first glance that God creates the heavens when he makes the firmament and he makes the waters above the heavens. He creates an expanse where he places the sun, moon, and stars. He calls that expanse heaven. So why are we being told that God is creating heaven in Genesis 1-1? Well, the answer to that is that there are two heavens. Uh, actually, there, if you want to go by the uh, the threefold delineation, there's three heavens. There's the sublunar heaven under the moon. This is where the birds fly. There's the translunar heaven, which is from the moon to the edge of the cosmos. That's marked off by the waters above the heavens. And then there's the celestial heaven, which is where God himself is enthroned and where there are myriads of angels. And now since the coming of Christ, there are saints in the heavenly court as well. But the relationship between these two heavens, that is the translunar heaven and the celestial heaven, uh, can be understood on a very clear analogy with the holy place and the holy of holies. As we've mentioned, the tabernacle and the temple is an architectural representation of the world, and the holy place and the holy of holies have the same relationship to each other that the heaven and the heaven of heavens has to each other. King Solomon says heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. So we have holy In English, that's simply rendered holy place, but it is a substantive adjective. It's holy and then holy of holies, and likewise, heaven and then heaven of heavens. The Spirit of God, of course, fills the highest heaven. And so when we see the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters, the waters which are all the earth is at this point, what we are seeing is heaven coming out of heaven, coming to earth and now it begins the work of or he begins always want to use personal pronouns for the holy spirit he begins the work of shaping and molding and maturing the creation up to the fullness of its heavenly model the angels are created as a host they don't reproduce through time they make a choice they move in relation to god or against him and that fixes their will in either good or evil there are metaphysical reasons for that but for today's purposes all that you need to understand is that that is the way that their will is wired human beings are different human beings mature they multiply they grow through time we make myriads of choices we take one step forward one step back two step forward one step back that is how human life works and human life works that way because that is the way that corporeal embodied terrestrial reality works that is the metaphysical quality of what it means for the earth to be the earth So the creation works as a binary pair which is created to indwell each other. 
Heaven and earth are designed to be interior to each other. God opens the work of creation by creating heaven and earth as a binary pair meant to be married in the eschaton. And then he closes the work of the six-day creation by making man as a binary pair designed to be united with each other. And man is the image of God. Now, when we say man here, the man who is created is the singular human family. The single man, with a capital M, as it were, who is created as both male and female, and whose intercommunion with God, with creation, and with each other is the means by which heaven comes to dwell in the earth. Now, how does that work, and how does that relate with the presence of the Holy Spirit? Well, in order to understand that, simply look at the more detailed account of the sixth creation day, narrated in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 opens with God's taking the dust of the ground and pouring into it his own spirit. This is the very spirit who has been God's agent in creative activity. This is the very spirit who comes from heaven to earth, lights up the world, and forms it and then fills it. And we see that because God puts his own spirit in man, man is the agent by which God continues to shape and create the world. That's why the spirit is in man. Now, spirit, of course, means breath or wind. When we see in the narration of the flood, we see that a wind blows over the face of the waters and the work of recreating the world begins. That corresponds to the spirit who is over the face of the waters. We see that when the wind blows over the face of the waters, it says God remembered Noah. And then we see again that God will remember Noah through the rainbow. And the rainbow, again, is light. It is a symbol of the person of the Holy Spirit in his creative and sustaining work in the world. Now, in order to speak, you need to have breath. We speak by the Holy Spirit. We speak through our breath. And we see something very interesting in the structure of Genesis 1. Naming something is part of creating it. It is not complete until it is named. Because a name is an identification which allows a person to hold that thing in his or her mind. Just think of a concept like symbol. Just how complicated and nuanced that concept is. Try to imagine holding that concept in your mind as a distinct thing without having a specific name for it. It would be virtually impossible. You need to have names for things if you're going to remember them. And you need to remember things if you are going to creatively work with them. You need to identify one thing from another and be able to distinguish them and understand the relationship. And that is inherent in the naming of a thing. And so we see that God names uh, most things in the first few days of creation, but then he creates all of these organisms which he doesn't name. Well, on the sixth creation day, still part of creation week, God gives them names, but he gives them names through his image, through man. And man is able to be the partner and instrument of God's creative work because man has the spirit of God in his nose. And because he has the spirit of God in his nose, that means he is able to breathe out the spirit of God into the world, see the world as it really is, and give all creatures an appropriate name, now allowing man to be God's agent, not only in naming and identifying the creatures, but in shaping, molding, and cultivating them. God says to Adam to guard and cultivate the garden. That is, keep what is good in it, good, preserve it, but also beautify it, grow it, make it better, gardenify and glorify the world, bring it up into the divine presence, elevate the mundane, and bring earth into heaven so that heaven comes down into earth. And that happens through the person of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, one more thing I want to say about this. We say that man is the image of God, but man is specifically the image of the second person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament is identified as the angel of the Lord because the Old Testament was an era governed and managed by angels. This is what Paul says in the letter to the Hebrews, quoting Psalm 8. For a little while, man was set under the angels, but now in Christ we are crowned with glory and honor so that we are the judges of angels. And they... Um, those who have retained their goodness, this is their delight and their joy. If you want to think about the way that this works, how this could be a delight and a joy, just think about a father, a good father, who raises his children and teaches them everything he knows and sees his children become better than he is. That is a joy when his children are elevated over him. In God's order, that is not something bad. It is no shame to relinquish authority because one has been the instrument by which others are grown up. So how does this relate to the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1-2? Well, the interesting thing is the Pentateuch was written by a single person. There are small changes that are made later by Samuel, by Ezra, um, but it was written principally by Moses. That's just the reality of it. And the Pentateuch is stitched together so that the beginning and end of it correspond to each other. There are many unique words that are used very rarely, but are used in Genesis 1 to 3 and then used again in Deuteronomy 30 to 33. Okay, so this is, they are designed to match each other. And what I want to focus on here is the word for hover, because it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, but that word is then used in Deuteronomy 32 when it says that God is hovering over Israel in his glory cloud. God personally leads Israel through the Red Sea and through the wilderness, and he does so in this very specific structured and visible form. The glory cloud, uh, which is covered in deep darkness for Israel's own protection, but you can see through that darkness into the fire, the uncreated fire, at night. That's why it's a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. That is the very same cloud that covered over the top of Mount Sinai. Why is it that Moses is able to see the structure of the tabernacle when he goes to the top of Mount Sinai? Well, it is because it is through the spirit that the world was given its structure to begin with, and Moses enters into that very same spirit when he goes to the top of Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 14, we see Israel's passage through the Red Sea narrated in a structure which recaps the events of creation week. The clearest way you can see this is by looking at the waters being divided from the waters. That is exactly what happens vertically in creation week when the waters above are separated from the waters below, that is the seas, and it happens horizontally in their passage through the Red Sea where it's a wall of water to their left and to their right. Now remember, horizontal and vertical are parallel images in scripture. As you move inward, you are symbolically moving upward. That is why in the tabernacle there are poles that run through horizontally the structure of the tabernacle so that spiritually speaking, the Holy of Holies is on top. It's not just the most inward, it's also the most upward. And what happens right before the waters are divided from the water? Well, what happens is we have the identification of the glory cloud and it says that it lit up the night. Now that phrase is an echo of what we were told in Genesis 1, where there was darkness that was over the face of the waters, and then the Spirit of God came, that is, God came in his glory, and he gave it light. And what we're being shown here is that Israel's passage through the Red Sea is a new creation. That is why, spiritually speaking, their passage through the Red Sea is a baptism. Baptism is a new creation. It's really amazing the way that scripture connects with our liturgical tradition in a really rich way. Now what I what I want to point out to you here is that we are shown 
that this glory cloud, it has myriads of myriads of God's angels, because remember, that was added to the environment of heaven. In Psalm 104, we have a po poetic celebration of the creation going day by day through each category of creature that God made. And then the first day, we are told about all of the heavenly ministers that God creates in that first created act. Well, all of those angels are there in God's heavenly environment, and God brings heaven to earth when he comes down in his glory cloud. But there's one in the center. That one is called the angel of the Lord or the angel of God. That is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Logos. Now, angel just means messenger, right? So why is it that Jesus the angel, is called the angel of the Lord? Well, number one, because he is head of the angelic hosts. That is his office. He's not literally um, by nature an angel, but we need to be clear that every angel has its own nature. Human beings all share one nature. Every angel has a species unique nature. So when we say Jesus is not literally an angel, we have to understand that every angel is not literally an angel in the sense that we say every human being is human. Okay, They're, These are two distinct kinds of being. But he's called the angel of the Lord because he is the one in whom God speaks everything. God reveals himself totally through the Son in the Spirit. God knows himself totally through the Son in the Spirit. Have you ever been talking about yourself? And when you're talking about yourself, suddenly you understand yourself more perfectly. Or you're talking to someone who's quite different from you, who's inclined to ask you different sorts of questions. And suddenly you find that it's not just that you're different from each other. You are drawn together because each of you comes to know himself or herself through knowing the other. This is a mirror of the way that God's own life works. God knows himself totally. I like to say he has no subconscious. He knows himself totally because he is fully enclosed in the communion of the other two divine persons. And the Son is the one in whom God fully discloses himself through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one through whom the Father gives all of himself to the only begotten Son and through whom the only begotten Son returns that love to the Father in a mutual embrace. And in order to reveal yourself, you reveal it through a name. And what is said of the angel of the Lord in Exodus 23? My name is in him. So all of the names of creatures are in the angel of the Lord. So now go back to Genesis 1 and think about what's going on there. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. We should think in our mind's eye of the glory cloud with Jesus, the only begotten son, enthroned in the center of that glory cloud. He has all of the names of God inside him. And now it makes sense why he starts naming things, because he starts, he's creatively working the world to be more like his own life. He's heavenizing the world. And when he makes man in his image, it means that man is going to continue that project. That is why Jesus himself personally completes that project and joins us to him so that we can complete it in him when he joins himself to a human body and a human soul, and he makes earth glorious and heavenly forever. That is why Paul calls him the man of heaven. Because now, heaven and earth are joined at the hip. They can't be separated. They're distinct, but they're married. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. So now, in your mind's eye, you see something like the iconography of Creation Week. Jesus is personally right there. The presence of Jesus in Creation Week is far more specific and concrete than I think sometimes we've been able to recognize. When we understand what it means for the Spirit of God to hover over the face of the waters, we see Jesus personally in that glory cloud. In Ezekiel 1, for example, we see that there are angels there. Remember, there are lots of angels buzzing around in God's glory cloud. And enthroned above them is one in the likeness of a man. 
That language in Ezekiel 1 is then picked up to describe the incarnate Lord as one like a son of man. In Ezekiel 1, we see four cherubic beasts, over which is one in the likeness of a man. And then in Daniel 7, we see that there are four beasts followed by one like a son of man. Ezekiel and Daniel are twin books. They're written at the same time. They're written by men who likely knew each other. They'd probably studied together under Jeremiah. They probably read each other's work. And they clearly refer to each other's texts. And Ezekiel actually refers to Daniel by name. He refers to him as one of the three most righteous men has ever lived. Noah, Job, Daniel. So Jesus is right there in the center. And that is why the angel of the Lord, when he makes man in God's image, he makes man in the image of the only begotten Son. And Jesus was right there on the first day of creation. And he's here in dwelling the church, continuing to creatively develop the world. Redemption is in the service of glorification. Even if there had never been a fall, man would still have work to do. Well, now the false start has been cleared away by the work of Christ so that we can have our true beginning and glorify the world forever. Thanks very much for listening.